Welcome to the PharmaSource podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with Scott Schliebner. Scott is a clinical development executive and advisor, and we talk about the challenges and opportunities around clinical trials, such as the patient recruitment problem, key trends for 2024, and his advice for how biopharmers can navigate the complex CRO industry. Scott, welcome to the PharmaSource podcast. Great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So you've obviously done a lot in your career around clinical research, patient recruitment, building clinical trials businesses. But right now you're a fractional chief commercial officer. Am I right? Right now I am supporting a variety of smaller early stage companies. And it's very fun to be helping early founders and CEOs get some traction with their organizations. But yeah, they're all focused in that space around clinical trial support, patient recruitment, data, things like that. Perfect. Well, I mean, could you tell me about that, please? How do you go about supporting these emerging biotechs? Sure. Well, there's, um, you know, I think it starts with this clinical research, clinical development space being, in a lot of ways, has been, you know, fairly archaic. I mean, we've been operating um, very similarly for many, many decades. Now, COVID came and produced some interesting challenges for us, and it forced us as an industry to adopt some things and evolve and try some new ways of operating, right? Mostly mm-hmm. around decentralized clinical trials and bringing things directly to patients. But um, the industry is very risk averse, right? Every project, every new clinical trial is critical and it's not something you want to sort of experiment with new approaches with. So we end up kind of rooted in the way we've done things. So Mm -hmm. why is that important? That's important because there are a lot of opportunities to improve areas of clinical development. There are a lot of problems to solve. And if you're an entrepreneur who thinks you can fix something or make it better or improve it or make efficiencies, you can build a company and build a solution and find a way to insert yourself into this industry and fix and solve some of those problems. So it's really fun to, um, as somebody who is naturally entrepreneurial and as somebody who loves a little bit of variety um, in my life, um, it's great to be able to help people It's great to be able to see kind of what they want to do and help them get from kind of zero to one. Um, And so I enjoy that quite a bit. And it also sort of inadvertently allows you to, um, I guess I am in a position where I see a lot of different things and I see a little bit of a survey of the industry. Mm -hmm. um, I am touching lots of different things. So that's been a little bit of an interesting unintended benefit that I um, I'm a little bit more, maybe more aware of what's out there in general, as opposed to being really deep and immersed maybe in just my own firm. Um, so it's been fun. Yeah. What are those common problems, those challenges which seem to come up again and again? What, what, are, what are the main things people seem to be struggling with? Sure. You touched on patient recruitment. I think that topic in and of itself is a challenge for the industry. So we are in a, we're in a state of the state of the industry, if you will, is that each year. Um, so we come, we're at the end of 2023 now as we record this. Next year in 2024, there will be even more clinical trials started that will require more patients to enroll to mm-hmm. move those forward. And these studies are becoming increasingly complex, meaning they're um, collecting more and more data and asking more and more of participants in the terms of assessments. So this has created a little bit of a backlog wherein very few patients 
very small single-digit percentage of patients who are eligible for a trial actually ever find out about a study or participate, mm. right? So we have a patient recruitment problem where um, more than half of all clinical trials are behind schedule due to enrollment delays. And then when you add on more studies requiring more patients that requires more of the patients, um, we have a patient recruitment challenge. So that is one bucket. Yeah. Um, is that driving up costs? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think it's it's delaying studies, right, which mm-hmm. delays clinical development, which delays time to decisions and commercialization, certainly. Um, it also drives costs because you have, in a lot of studies, you have a, a, a percentage of clinical sites that never enroll a patient, but they've mm-hmm. been invested in to start them up and manage and communicate with them. So there's some wasted resources there. Um then I think there are lots of efforts underway to recruit these patients, and that has costs associated. And lastly, I mean, even when we recruit patients, because we're putting them in studies that are challenging, um, we have a fair number that drop out and don't complete. We have mm-hmm. these; uh, we have a retention problem as well. So all those different variables result in delays and costs. And so, um, I mean, that's one area that is a problem, quote unquote, yep, that yep. a few people are trying to tackle and fix. As we go into 2024, from your view across the CRO space, what do you think the main changes are going to be? Well, I think all industries, there was an article that Bill Gates put out, I think yesterday saying 18 months from now, we'll see AI really immersed in everyone's daily lives. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know, my crystal ball is not so crystal clear. Um, However, I'm seeing more and more of, you know, AI, ML, natural language processing used to um, sort of sort through lots of data and um, um, find help, help match patients to clinical trials, things like that. So I think AI is obviously a trend, I think, in pick an industry. Um, We've got some pretty good traction already, I think, in clinical development. I think you're just going to continue to see more of the AI approaches, especially as we have these huge data sets, whether it's medical records or whether it's clinical data or whether it's um, real world evidence or things from wearables, Mm -hmm. a lot of information to kind of integrate and sort through and I think AI will help. I think another thing we see, um, you know, I mentioned, I think one of the little kind of silver linings, if you will, of COVID was that, it forced our risk-averse industry to adopt and try some new things that we would not have otherwise tried. Mm -hmm. And one of those was the rise of this paradigm that we ended up labeling decentralized clinical trials. So this DCT approach was really intended to bring clinical trials to patients, um, allow you or I to participate in a study from our home, Mm -hmm. not have to drive into central London every Friday for 52 weeks. That's um, a relief. Yeah. Right? Um, the, the trials are burdensome, <clears throat> as we said. So finding ways to use, whether it's video, remote data capture, um, e-consents, um, apps that allow us to um, participate via our phones. This DCT approach was really a huge trend. It's really all we talked about last year. Yeah, and it felt like it was getting real traction. Yeah. I feel like it's, I feel like the pendulum is swinging back towards the middle. I think there's been some early days where 
the ROI of some of those approaches has not been really what I think people wanted to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, again, when you, when you take risk averse perspective and you do a decentralized clinical trial where oversight of the study is now distributed to a lot of different groups and maybe it remove it moves away from a site and an investigator. There's been some quality concerns. There's been some things in the news that um, give people pause. And so I think we're hitting the brakes on the DCT approach. And I think we might be moving forward in a way that, again, back to crystal balls. I think might I think I could see us dropping the DCT DCT term altogether, and we go forward with a with a with a model where any, all, most trials, just have a couple DCT-type components within them, right? If a patient mm-hmm. wants to have a nurse come to their week four visit instead of them driving to central London, that's kind of built into the study. Or doing an e-consent or remote data capture or some kind of e-pro or e-coa is built into a study as opposed to it's a site-based study or one of these new DCT studies. I think it'll be like a hybrid blend, and that'll be just kind of a natural evolution. So I think I think we're sort of moving in that direction pretty quick. You mentioned that there were some concerns around quality assurance and around ROI when it comes to decentralized clinical trials. On the other side, what about retention and acquisition of patients? I mean, you'd think that this this model would be much more positive in, in solving that patient problem. Right. Absolutely. Great point. In theory, it should be much better. It should provide access for patients. Again, picking on London, if you live um far away from a city center or maybe from a primary academic medical institution. You know, I the clinical trials should be a, they're a source of care for many patients, right? They're mm-hmm. not necessarily a experiment, right? They are clinical research as a care option. Craco is a thing. And I think it's only appropriate to make sure everyone can access those. So DCTs and that kind of approach moving to community centers, moving to rural areas, allowing everyone to participate, regardless of not only where they live, but you know, another big sort of thing we're focused on in the industry right now is making sure that the studies we run are representative of the populations that eventually will be, you know, using these new therapies in their mm. in the real world. So we're really focused, particularly in the US, on diversity, inclusion, access, um, and again, ensuring we're 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 enrolling representative patients, because historically, when you look at demographics um, of who's enrolled in studies, the far, far, far majority of participants look a little bit like Luke and a little bit like Scott. Uh We have mostly men and we have mostly Caucasians. And, you know, there's a lot of challenges around how do we change that. But some of these new approaches, like a DCT type approach that moves to, say, community-based centers, or maybe we see trials start opening up at pharmacies and drugstores or retail locations that are accessed by a different population, you know, it's great. It really, it allows it to become accessible for all and a little more equitable. Mm-hmm. And then I think you help achieve a little bit of the representation as well. Yeah. Let's talk about the CROs themselves, because it's a really interesting ecosystem of companies, some very, very large companies, and then some much, much mm-hmm. smaller mid-sized firms. Interested to get your take on what that looks like through the eyes of a biopharma. So how does a sponsor get started in trying to navigate this landscape, find the right partner for them? Sure. Well, for 
for the audience that isn't super familiar or working in a CRO, it is a good size industry that exists. And I think it exists outside the views of a lot of people, right? I mean, um, hmm. my mother doesn't still quite understand really what I do for work, right? Um, the CRO space, though, you know, we have some very large public companies. Um, there are several that are sort of accumulated at the top of the, the food chain, if you will. Um, but then it's highly fractionalized. And there's a lot of medium and smaller size firms. There's a lot of niche specialty groups. So if you're a, a biotech or a pharmaceutical company, you know, and you've decided on a model where you're going to keep some core staff that are part of your firm, but you're going to outsource primarily a clinical trial where, you know, you have a um, an uptick in the effort needed, right? And the FTEs mm -hmm. and the people you need, and then that drops down. It doesn't obviously make sense to build all that out. You also need specific expertise and you often need geography covered for you of where your trial is going to be. So, um, you know, if you're a Cambridge, Massachusetts based biotech company, just kind of the epicenter of bio biotech um, makes a lot of sense to find a good drug development partner to pick a CRO that fits, that knows your therapeutic area and the indication that you're going in mm -hmm. um, that's run studies similar to that before. Um, but we do have an interesting um, mixture right now, again, in that CRO space, where we have some very, very large companies that are big and global and can do anything and they can do anything anywhere. Um, but I've also found that those groups are also, because they're so large, you know, taking on a relatively small project from a Cambridge, Massachusetts biotech company doesn't really quite move the needle for them. It's not super important to them. It's not really a priority to them. So I think you have a lot of biopharma customers looking for smaller and mid-sized CROs that can still have the capabilities that they want, but someone that can match them in terms of size, flexibility, nimbleness. They're looking for a little customer support. So if this phase two clinical trial is not a very big priority to large CRO number one, it might be a really nice project and a big priority for a mid-tier CRO. So there's a dynamic there that I think is evolving. Um, and, um, you know, with some of the tough economic kind of uh, headwinds that are out there, we might even see some more acquisitions or consolidation in the space as yeah. well. So it's, it's always very dynamic. So it's interesting to keep our eyes on that. Yeah. Size is one factor. So making sure that your business is close to being as important to them as it is to you, because you've, you've sunk mm -hmm. your everything into developing this treatment. What other factors would you say are important when it comes to selecting a CRO that's that's appropriate for you? Of all the different factors you could look at, how important is expertise in the relevant therapeutic area? Is that usually the starting point? I think that's usually very important. I think that, again, if you go back to risk-averse mindset, so our example biotech company in Cambridge, um, they live and breathe and are so focused on their molecule and their disease state. They're thinking about that. 24-7, right? Mm. There were a couple interesting advanced therapeutics approved last Friday for sickle cell disease. So just to ground this a little bit, they're thinking about sickle cell disease every day. They're thinking about the mechanism of action of their therapeutic. They're thinking about these patients. The CROs are certainly working in the sickle cell disease area, but they're not thinking about sickle cell all day, every day. Um, the biotech company is looking for someone that can kind of that understands the science, that understands the therapeutic area, 
maybe most importantly, really understands what these patients are going through and the physicians who see them and take care of them. Um, so those kinds of things are very important. Um, mm. At the end of the day, this is also a project-based transaction, really, right? So we're talking about a clinical trial that might be a, maybe it's a three-year project. Mm -hmm. So you're also looking at things like not just, you know, what has this big CRO done historically? Have they worked on eight sickle cell disease studies? Okay, that's that's fantastic. But what about the team who's working on my study? Who is this proposed team? Who are the people mm -hmm. themselves, right? Who's my project manager? Who's the medical monitor? Do they have actual experience in sickle cell disease? Um, what do they like to work with? We're going to have to interact daily, right? It's it's a little like um, it's a little like building a house and maybe interviewing like an architecture firm or a contractor, right? Um, mm. Sure, you've done some great things in the past. Can we work together really well? Pricing, of course, comes into it at some point. Um, and I think also I also think there's some element of like capabilities and and maybe even a little bit around strategy. So what does a CRO sh show up with to the table around? How are they going to recruit these patients? How are they going to find them? So there's there's a few criteria. I think mm -hmm. each company might make their decision, you know, uh, with their own level of priorities. But those are a couple of the big pieces. Yeah. If you were to go to a biopharma now, what tips could you give them for getting a drug through clinical trials? Five things, say, which you, you absolutely have to do to get your drug through quickly. Sure. I guess I would start with things like, you know, let's say you were in the preclinical space still and you, mm -hmm. you know, let's let's pick on sickle cell um, disease again, just as a tangible example. Mm -hmm. So if I was doing some preclinical work and I hadn't even started clinical trials, the first thing I would do is I would um, probably um, reach out and try to build some relationships with the patient advocacy groups that are working in sickle cell disease. Mm. I'd want to learn from them about their patients. I'd want to support them. I'd want to um, let them know that we have a clinical trial coming at some point and we're really invested in this area. And um, I think patients often know more about their disease than anyone. I think a lot of the advocacy groups help facilitate things. Um, you know, if there's not a patient registry that already exists, maybe help create that so that we know where patients are that would facilitate later enrollment recruitment. That'd be one thing I would do. Um, I think, um, I mean, obviously some of this is, is how people do work already, but there's, there's, there's strategy and there's discussions with like regulatory agencies around the pathway you're going to take, mm. the design you're going to take a little bit of like, um, what are some of the endpoints that you're thinking about not to get too in the weeds, but those are all important things that can be, um, you can take some missteps if you're not aligned with the agencies on that. Um, I think more and more too, we haven't talked about this yet, but in addition to these randomized controlled setting clinical trials, um, you know, the FDA here in the US and other regulatory bodies are also looking for and encouraging uh, the collection of more real world evidence, right? Mm. Uh, what data do we have and how do patients use these therapies when they're at home, when they're walking around doing their last minute Christmas shopping and they're not under the supervision of a physician, what happens? So I think as you're moving along with this clinical development program, in addition to the clinical trial data, 
You also want to be thinking about real world evidence and real world data that you collect outside of a trial. It could be a prospective natural history study or a registry. Um, maybe it includes um, some uh, patient reported outcomes or clinical mm -hmm. outcome assessments that we collect over time. Maybe it's um, after a study is over, you follow patients later on for safety and quality of life. So I think that would be another piece as well. So um, those are big. And then I think the last little plug I think is for around this sort of focused patient recruitment, creating some yep. awareness of your program, partnerships with the communities, like I mentioned, but um, to go forward and not, and, and kind of have some, there are companies that think, oh, our new therapy is so amazing. Everyone's going to come. If you, you know, the field of dreams, if you build it, they will come. Um, I think we're learning that trials are burdensome for patients. And so mm -hmm. you got to do a little bit more than just put it out there. You need to actually like make an effort and find patients and try to make your studies reasonable for people. So that would be the last kind of piece, I think, that would maybe help accelerate clinical development a bit. Absolutely. If there's one hope you could have for the industry in the year ahead, one frustrating thing which you'd like us to sort out, what would that be? The list is long. The list is long, Luke. But I would say one I, one thing that I feel like is administrative and not overly complicated and should be simple, you know, should be simple mm. to fix, is that when you start a clinical trial and you go to clinical sites or you go to academic medical centers or hospitals, every single institution or entity <clears throat> needs to have their own contract, their own budget. They need to submit it to their own IRB or ethics committee. And, you know, they need to have their own lawyers looking at things and making sure, you know, risk is avoided, right? I understand that, especially in the US, we're like highly litigious over here. Um, I feel like that administrative steps delays every study by like six months. And I feel like we could come to some general consensus where we agree on some language, we agree on contractual and budget terms, and we just have a standardized piece that could eliminate five, six months from every clinical trial. So yeah. that's my, that's my, on my Christmas wish list is let's simplify and streamline that administrative step up front. There's a lot of lawyers you'd be taking out with that. But... Right, right, exactly. I know that might be very unpopular with some people, but I think you could really streamline and get, get studies open faster, get studies completed faster, get drugs to market faster. It seems like we're held up a little bit in the red tape. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure speaking with you today. Hey, thanks for having me, Luke. It was fun. Thank you to Scott for the insightful conversation. For regular insights into the pharma outsourcing landscape, make sure to register at pharmasource.global and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Thank you for listening.